Hi, and welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour, and this week we are going in time and in sync with uh, Gattaca. I'm uh, joined by uh, two regulars. Matt Wallen, how are you? Uh, really good. And Ty Rubin, how are you? I'm doing well. Doing very well. So, guys, I'm actually in America for a change. I'm in San All right. Woo-hoo. We're almost in the oh, same the- time zone. In the same Starbucks yeah. zone. Yeah, that's my favorite city in the United States, you know. I propose to my wife here. It's my city as well. I like it a lot. Um, So, look, uh, I was very keen to put this show on the uh, roster, uh, so it's my uh, definite push on this one. Though I think this will be a short show. It's going to be like kind of a more of a mini show for a couple of reasons. One, because I desperately need to... um, to uh, meet an, somebody for a, uh, an appointment later, but also because it's not a huge effects uh, thing. But I just wanted to maybe cover a few films like this that were less than mega blockbusters, but that we found really phenomenally interesting and obviously had a kind of bent that I thought was appropriate to the VFX show. But I know even internally in the VFX show community here, a couple of us raised eyebrows as, why does Mike want to do this show? But I really <laughs> liked it. So... So I'm coming out of the gate first this week and saying I thought In Time was a splendid film. It was really interesting. It was obviously a smelly low-budget film um, written by the same person that wrote Gattaca, which is why I thought of this as basically Gattaca meets uh, Bonnie and Clyde. And so I said, well, we should put those films together. And then uh, Ian in our office said, ah, oh, man, same writer. So that's why we you know, double-gang those shows. Um, and quite frankly, I think there's a lot of similarities in intelligent use of visual effects in a relatively small uh, film. We're talking about uh, films that cost, you know, around 32 million, I think, for Gattaca and about 40 million for for uh, In Time. But not not mega kind of things, but I just think very well executed. And quite frankly, I enjoyed watching them because I didn't know where everything was going, had an original premise, and I just felt like it was a non-superhero kind of thing that was good for to see but that's my opinion ty what do you think um well i went to i went to the theater primarily because uh that um you know i knew we were going to be doing the show otherwise i'm not so sure that i actually would have gotten uh, out to the multiplex just because you know it seemed like kind of a uh, this new movie in time, you know, it, it's kind of had a, a youth market quality that I wasn't too um, excited about. And I'm, I think Justin Timberlake's a very talented, uh, both actor and performer. So it wasn't anything to do with the casting, but, you know, it didn't really have a hook. I thought that the, um, the idea that, you know, basically every individual has this readout in their arm was kind of echoing of Logan's run in a sense, uh, you know, where they had a little jewel in their palm and and even from the previews i kind of felt like uh, it was trotting territories that i had um, seen in the past that said when i got into the theater um i thought they did a a, a a good job with the premise you know building the the structure on the premise which was really in my mind uh that time in this case was money or life or the ability to live free and and be you know whatever you want to to be fully human to be fully realized uh, and so I think the director did a good job director writer actually did a good job in uh, you know uh, combing it together in a way that made you thoughtful of that the timing of it with the Occupy movement is interesting because uh, you know when Gattaca came along I think we were just starting to uh, think about what the genome project and these different ideas about DNA and and having the ability to do tests on people for 
you know, future diseases and stuff. He it really took that and, and ran with the ball and kind of created a social statement. Uh, I'd say that the attempt was here to do a similar thing and that the timing with this kind of uh, social unrest these days is 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 interesting in as much as that maybe he's actually tapped into the zeitgeist in a way that, um, you know, he was um, semi-aware of this kind of unfolding. But to me, I think that Gattaca is the... The, the much stronger of the two pictures, and I felt that at times, um, at, as far as the film goes, um, I was a little bit perplexed with some of the directing decisions that were uh, made in uh, in time. Really, what what what? Uh... Well, it seemed like uh, it seemed um, as though I got the primary premise early on, and then the action sequences that unfolded after the you know, primary instigating episode, instigating moment where uh, Justin Timberlake is on the run and and, uh, he's kind of snatched the most powerful uh, and richest man in in minutes, that is, or or in days or years, depending on, you know, how many, he's got a century of time or several centuries or a million, I guess, at the end of the story. But he's basically the most powerful and wealthy man. And uh, Timberlake makes off with his daughter, and from that point on, it, it just became a structure which was convenience. You know, people showed up for no reason. There's a scene where, you know, Justin Timberlake is sitting on a curb, and there's the cop out of the clear blue sky, alone in his car, just shows up and gets out of his car with his gun and uh, approaches. Uh, there's no sense of logic or um, any sense of kind of geographical sensibility. It's just things kind of are haphazard. They end up in their room a lot with with no precursor as to why they're there. Uh, They escape pretty easily from most difficult situations. And I felt like the third act uh, was was somewhat muddled uh, in that regard. And and I didn't think the action was um, authentic to me. Hmm. Well, I'm glad you're on the show then. I like someone that disagrees with me. Um, Matt, what do you think? Uh, well, I mean, I would probably say some similar things to maybe what Ty said, um, at least in the sense that, you know, I don't I don't know that this is a movie that I would have uh, gone out to see if we weren't going to do the show. But that uh, doesn't mean that, you know, I was sort of excited when uh, the opportunity came up to do the show because originally I think uh, I wasn't scheduled for this one. But but I was happy to have an excuse to go to the movies on a Monday. So that was great. And um, I didn't realize uh, until I started reading the stuff that uh, Todd and I think Ian had sent me some stuff too about the show that it was the same director who had done Gattaca. And I, and I too, when Gattaca came out, uh, uh, I was really enamored with that film. I thought it really worked well. It had a great kind of low budget, uh, sci-fi kind of premise to it that, and, and was really timely with, you know, the sequencing of the human genome and all that good stuff. Um, so I was excited to go and see this and thought, well, okay, great. You know, it's the same guy that made, uh, Gattaca. And I think there was certainly, uh, elements of it where I could feel it had the same touch. It kind of had some of the same, um, uh, s- similar kind of um, art direction and stuff, the, the sound of the electric vehicles and stuff like that. Um, but I I don't know that I... Overall, as a movie, I, I don't know that I, I really... Um, I liked some of the ideas. I liked some of the... Uh, you know, I like that it was sort of unique. I think that's what you said, Mike, was that it, you didn't quite know where it was going. And I, I agree with you. I do like that when I see a movie that feels kind of fresh in that way. 
but I think overall, like it wasn't, I didn't think it was that great. I, I kind of was, I was disappointed. I feel like I would probably agree Gattaca is the stronger of the two films. I would say by far, um, it's, a, it feels like a much more, uh, serious film, a much more well planned out and more well thought out film. And this felt like a different, if this felt like a lower budget version of Gattaca with, you know, a few less um, sort of philosophical plot points uh, or, or subtext to it, and maybe with a little bit more of an attempt at sort of an action kind of pop, uh, popcorny kind of film. So I don't disagree with you that Gattaca is probably a better film, but I still think this one uh, was good. So let's discuss Gattaca for a second because, you know, there's nothing, uh, it's not a competition. Hmm. They don't seem to be one better than the other, but no, I, no, think sure. we sort of like, I think we like Gattaca. I do think, though, that uh, have you guys recently seen Gattaca? I actually just watched uh, it. Watched it this afternoon after after watching. Uh, I saw it just after watching in time. Was it as was good like, as I you remember go back it? it? I actually thought it was better than I remembered. Interesting. Because <laughs> I thought I thought I, I sort of remembered it being even stronger than it was. Because I loved it when it came out. I thought it was just so good to see someone solving problems by thinking outside the box. You know, you're not, you're not going to have the budget to have sci-fi cars, so we'll use, mm. you know, triumphs and make them motorized by just changing the audio. I was just like, it was just genius. And right down to the fact that they didn't want to have to make spacesuits for one set of scenes, so they get them all boarding the spaceship in, in suits. In suits, yeah. Well, um, it's, almost like, it's almost like a fairy tale in that way, and I think In Time is kind of the same way in that it's not it doesn't really feel like it's our world in the future or even Gattaca is our world in the future. It's almost like it's another world, you know, an alternate universe or something with a different timeline, a different sense of history where like, yes, that kind of 1940s era or fifties era kind of suit was still very much in vogue and in fashion, but yet we're in this sort of futuristic age of, you know, genomic processing and stuff like that. So I think, you know, there's kind of this, this fantastical kind of conceit that I think they uh, are going for in a film like Gattaca and, and also maybe too in a film like in time, it doesn't necessarily feel to me like it's supposed to be necessarily, you know, our world in the future. Maybe it is, but it, it didn't feel that way to me. Plus Roger Deakins filmed it. And so anything Roger Deakins films is by default, really, really good. Um, <laughs> so uh, actually, I'm sorry, Roger Deakins filmed in time. Um, Gattaca, uh, for me, got me at the opening shot of the fingernail and the um, the hair dropping because I thought that super close-up shot worked really well. I don't, and, yeah. and I just felt like it was not only an interesting way to start the film, but it became more interesting as there was more significant place on those items in the film as it as it went along. And it did have some really interesting actors in it, like Ernest Borgnine, which I just sort of totally didn't expect. Um, but having said that, the visual effects were of an era that you couldn't do hardly anything. I mean, there's a distant shot of a kind of a space shuttle kind of launch going on in a number of shots, but mm-hmm. the end sequence when they're in the spaceship and they're basically playing the liftoff through lights moving on a wall struck me as, when I saw it, saw it the second time, as like really lame. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, for a final part, of, it was just like, oh my God, we literally have no money left. Well, let's just get some follow spots and just shine them around and be done with it. I mean, it, it just... I just thought there got to be better ways of solving this. If they've been so clever in solving everything else, Ty, do you know? Do you know what I mean? That end shot with the lights on the 
sort of portal kind of yeah yeah it uh, it definitely goes uh by the time he's passed the final test to become an astronaut and to go into space uh it, it definitely becomes a a surrealist film at that moment. And I, I had seen a, a little documentary at some point in time, a, a, a little behind the scenes um, making of Gattaca kind of a deal. And I understand that uh, the studio had an issue with uh, um, the um, Ethan Hawke's character not wearing a spacesuit. And uh, what the director did was uh, send them a copy of uh, Hayward Floyd from 2001, who travels in a in a space in you know travels through space in a business suit and i guess that kind of uh, you know made the studio feel okay about it so um i think that by the time the ending of the the picture is there the space flight itself is kind of this it's almost in my mind like it, it, it the movie's already finished so it's sort of a uh, it's sort of a um, you know like a almost like a, a fairy tale moment and i think you're right mike it is a little bit um disappointing to be sure uh, but on the other hand um, you know it, it it kind of follows the pedigree of the larger picture in regards to some of how they stylize things so, okay, so i'm going to put you guys it wasn't, on this, a, it wasn't a buzz kill for me i'm going to put you guys on the spot because i often say about this show that the only reason i think we can be critical is if we're willing to stick our necks out and come up with something better so let's say the three of us are sitting around and uh and i have the honor to be working with you on this film and we've run out of money and we want to do the end shot. Surely, even now, without any warning, just bringing this on you, you guys could each come up with a better visual solution to that ending that would have played in a stronger fashion, don't you think? Just visually for the, for the shot of the characters in the ship, you mean? Well, just, yeah, you've got the end of the sequence. You've got no money for a major visual effects shot. Don't you think you could? I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think you could have, I think they could have done a lot of the same could have gotten the same kind of impact, the same kind of effect if they'd done something just a little bit more, maybe shooting it through, you know, glass or something and where you, or some, where you had like some reflection of, you know, clouds or, you know, moving past his face or the earth or something, you know, where you had some sense of something changing. Like, you know, you go back and look at, I know when you go back and look at movies like a, you know, much bigger budget movies, I'm sure, but like Apollo 13 or, or the right stuff, you know, the kind of, the, the seminal space movies and you look at the shots i'm much more familiar with the right stuff as a movie that's one of my all-time favorite films and i if if you go back and look at you know any of the shots where they show um you know ed harris as john glenn or um scott glenn as uh alan shepherd or you know any of those Mm -hmm. guys and they show them they're in the um you know one of the mercury capsules and they'll i know i think colossal pictures who no longer is around i think did a lot of the visual effects for that show and uh, you'll see them lying on their backs, getting ready to take off. And then when the rocket starts going up, you're seeing the reflections. And this is something you couldn't have done in Gattaca. Maybe there's a way you could have glass or window reflection out to an exterior of the spacecraft. But you see the reflections of light and of clouds moving across the bubble of the um, the glass on the spacesuit, and then the light is moving sort of slowly across the face, you know, really hard, hard light with a hard shadow. And so you get a much more sort of grandeur-like kind of effect that that looks, I think, still to this day, going back and watching the right stuff, I think those launch sequences still hold up uh, in terms of the kind of the, the... the mood and the emotion of the moment that I think, you know, is probably similar to what you would want to feel, 
you know, for him finally attaining this goal of getting into space at the end of Gattaca. And I, and I certainly think there are ways that they could have done something more, but, you know, I, maybe the, maybe the intent, and I think it was a failed intent. I would agree with you, Mike, it did look really cheap, but I think maybe the intent was to maybe something more impressionistic or something, you know, where it wasn't so much about, you know, maybe there was some other goal uh, that, that in the end, it just didn't, it didn't come off maybe okay. as intended. Ty, I'm I'm uh, the studio, and I'm saying, hey, reshoot that ending for me. Your second unit director, but oh, by the way, we've run out of money. What are you going to do? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think this is an awkward, a little bit awkward because I didn't think it for me it didn't play that poorly just oh, okay. because I thought there was a lot of a lot of whimsy in the larger film. So, I mean, to me, it was sort of like uh, you know the briefcase in Pulp Fiction where. You never really get to see inside it, and when they open it up, it kind of, you know, casts golden light on, uh, you know, John Travolta and, well, but I and think so forth. It was it was illusion and kind of, it was sort of um, falling action. If you look at the the film, you know, it's it's really he's he's made his way down this corridor and now he's off. I mean, I think you could have cut the film to an exterior shot of the capsule with the thing driving up through space. I don't. I think you're right about the. Um, the moment where you see the lights on the inside in this round uh, kind of porthole that's looking up towards space, at, at that point it becomes almost like a David Lynch film or something. It, that particular <laughs> sequence, I would agree with you, is it's shockingly um, almost bizarre given the larger finesse of the film, like you've said. Although I would say that it isn't, in my mind, a narrative point. You could have just had him walk through that weird corridor and then cut to the shot of the spacecraft like you would and there you go then the studio could be I happy mean, with that I mean decision. that's certainly that's what I was alluding to I think you could have gone to the wide yeah. shot I think you could have gone to a macro shot of his eyeball and just played the light as the iris changed because it went from bright light to dark as they went into space you, which would have been nice to bookend with the opening with the fingernails yeah the other macro shot yeah, yeah you point. could have gone uh you could have gone to her in a super close-up listening to the launch unable to look up but then maybe she does because finally she looks at a launch kind of thing or whatever and that's like a hundred ways i think that that you could workshop that with some filmmakers and come up with some nice visuals that had some yeah. resonance it just mm -hmm. felt to me uh, odd and and it was odd at a point when the film where you should care a lot because it's kind of the last shot of the film work virtually. Um, anyway, I I don't want to. Make I was just going to say, you know, just just having watched Gattaca again, you know, if we wanted to talk specifically about some of the visual effects, um, you know, I I was noticing in the 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 key really primary effect in the whole thing is those rocket launches. I don't know if there's a whole lot of other major effect shots in the movie, but but um, the first two or three rocket launches that we see i was actually really i was i just rented it from um from itunes and i was watching an hd version of it and i was surprised that the um the rocket launch thing i was like God, i wonder if that happened in the transfer or was that something in the original composite but there's no in the first i think two or three rocket launches there's it looks like the um what would be like a super white you know the uh mm. the the emitter for the uh, the fuel coming out of the rocket, it looks clamped and it's super flat and it doesn't look bright at all. It's not like a light source of any kind. It just is a white spot. And, but then the last two launches that you see, uh, which I think one of them is his at the very end, and there's one previous to that that he sees going up 
like the last flight before his flight. And those actually did have um, uh, bright uh, whites. They, you were, I felt like you were a tiny bit closer to them. And I, I, there was just something, I just watched it literally like, you know, a couple hours before, for, a couple hours previous to this. So, I mean, it was really fresh in my mind and it was something I was um, just made a note of that I thought was kind of interesting. I mean, I really liked this film, as I said. I mean, I adored it. But, Ty, just to sort of be argumentative, I mean, there are plot things in this film, Gadiga, that seem to be incredibly convenient. The fact that you would have a home incinerator that happens to be easy enough to climb inside and has no safety mechanism to stop you <laughs> from switching it on from inside seems a remarkably convenient thing to have. Um, uh, yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think that where I would make a distinction is the most of the decisions that are odd, if you will, or kind of surreal in a way uh, about Gattaca in my mind are in service to the story. They're in okay. service to the narrative components. The story about this is exclusive genetic uh, universe that's been set up by mankind to improve and expand the capacities of the human condition, supposedly, while uh, keeping people back, a new form of prejudice. And they did a clever job of having different terms and so forth. Actually, I understand there was going to be a closing sequence after the credits ran, which was actually like the best of people that wouldn't have been able to survive life in that environment, like... uh, Abraham Lincoln or, you know, um, um, Einstein, who would have had been genetically taken out of the pool, as you were, taken out of the program. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, invalids or whatever, yeah. Yeah, invalids. Uh, If I may, though, on on just to to jump back a little bit to um, in time, I mean, I think one of the things that I did enjoy quite a bit and, and, and appreciated about the picture in the opening, and I think part of why I was a little bit you know, disappointed was that I like a director who sets the story in a bold way. And the opening of uh, In Time is basically um, Justin Timberlake describing in a few lines to the audience, don't worry about the logic of this story. But at some point, man started to use time as as currency. And then, boom, you're there with the clock, which was really was a beautifully done effect shot, a kind of slow motion, you know, powers of 10 from this, what first you think is glowing lights in a cloud or something, back through the biology of a human until you finally escape from the skin and you see that these clocks are kind of built into the, everyone's arm. And I was really kind of ready to participate at that point. So, you know, that's a huge uh, directorial um you know, uh, coup to be able to establish your whole story with a, a minimal amount of dialogue. And then the opening sequence um, uh, with the kind of factories, a little bit similar to the vibe of 1984, this kind of, you're not quite sure what people do in these factories, but they're kind of oppressive by the look and the art direction. And, um, you know, I think that the first 15 to 20 minutes, I was totally rooting for the picture. I was kind of buying the the um, the larger concepts and and thinking that it was going to be um, um, you know a, uh, it was going to play out in a in that in a manner that I was uh, you know excited for and so I maybe was you know ahead of the ball a little bit whereas I think Gattaca hits a tone early and it kind of stays at that tone for the re- for the remainder of the movie the two high points really as far as action goes are his swimming with his brother and then the one little chase scene where he has Uma Thurman out to dinner and he does a little fighting but it's kind of a 
a very much of a, a surrealist film. I mean, even the, the the tone it has, it it sets a tone. It kind of sticks with it as a meditation, as it were. I think in time tried to become like Matt said earlier, an action picture. And at times the action directing and and the sequences and the and the the way that it was shot and edited, I thought were were fine. It's just that it didn't as seamlessly fit into the backdrop I thought that was being created, and it. It kept kind of devolving in my mind till at the end it would seem like a lot of sort of random found environments with people mulling about. So, you know, I I'm, I think there was some some quality thinking and quality filmmaking. It's just that maybe it just didn't stack up for me in this particular case. Yeah, uh, we are talking the difference between '97 and and obviously today. Um, but I do think there was also great camera work in the 97 Gattaca. Uh, there was a, an upside-down shot at the beach, I seem to remember. There was some really nice stuff. And I do like it when you get a film that gives itself permission to not just be the obvious uh, Hollywood camera that is never you know, drawing attention to itself. Um, in the case of In Time, uh, I thought that it was... It was obviously a little um, more kind of uh, appealing to sort of, you know, a younger crowd. But I do think the point you made earlier, this idea of tapping into the zeitgeist, makes it really interesting because it is offering a pretty strong comment on uh, wealth and the retention of wealth at the expense of others and and a literal, you know, costing people their lives uh, by removing the middleman of money. Um, And I thought that it got points for that because it's too obvious to make a, a literal film about these subjects. And if you can come up with an interesting way to approach that, that gets you thinking. And it did have me thinking after the film was over. And, uh, you know, look, it wasn't uh, the greatest film ever, but I really did think it was, uh, it had some thought provoking stuff in it. But look, I guess we should just go a bit harder on the, on the visual effects in, um, in time. And, I, and, and the big one we've already touched on is because this arm with uh, lights up, uh, which uh, we actually have a story about that on FX Guide, and it's a it's a visual effect that needs to play very very strongly throughout the whole film because there are a lot of plot points that pivot around it, um, and a combination of tracking stuff on and actually having uh, things on the arm and then having rigs removed and entire arm replacements in some shots. Did you guys feel like we have a we had no idea why people were born with this thing or even the technology that allowed it, but we were presumably a hundred years in the future, so. Did it feel effectsy that's that stuff on the arm, or did it feel like it was actually on their arms and and in their lives? I I bought it. I mean, I thought it worked pretty good. There was only there was one shot in the whole movie where uh, it didn't track very well. It kind of bounced around a little bit, and it was on the girl's arm, the Amanda Seafried, or I think is her name, and uh, but it was bouncing a little bit on her arm in. Uh, a two shot of where she's on screen right and Justin Timberlake is on screen left. And uh, it's a dialogue scene between the two of them where I think they're sitting in a, uh, on a sofa, like a leather sofa in like a hotel or something hiding out. And there was one where it kind of bounced around on her arm, but I thought all the, all the effects uh, of the, of the arm in general and the tracking and the 3d replacement of the arm, the way they used uh, the, um, some LED, some green LED light panels that they attached to the actors' arms to get the um, interactive lighting on the faces and stuff. Um, all that stuff worked really well. I thought it looked it looked pretty cool, and I like you know when they when they finally 
sort of timed out, I guess they said, uh, the way it kind of went brown, you know, everything went to zeros and it went to brown. It looked sort of looked like burned skin or something. I thought that was really neat. And you, it did feel like it was under the skin. It seemed sort of subcutaneous. Um, and I thought that that, that also, uh, was really successful. I thought they did a great job with it. Um, the only thing about it, I guess that sort of, I kind of had, I got a little tired of the, um, the, the sort of one-liners about time, you know, everything oh, was about great. time. And, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Coming from time, yes. Um, okay, I mean that's that work that we're referring to now. That's the work of Soho VFX um, in Toronto. And uh, Ty, what did you think? Yeah, I think I think I, I agree with uh, Matt's perspective on this. I, I thought as 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 kind of outlandish as it as it is as a concept that it was done with a lot of finesse um there was one shot when they were swimming in the water where it occurred to me and you know maybe i'm a cynic who's been around movies too long that they happen to use the exact same glow green that is a glow stick glow green so that they could uh, use that technology of simple glow sticks at time to kind of punch up the light which is a smart production move but i probably wouldn't have even gone that close to thinking about it except for the scene in the water where it's in uh, there's a lot of light pumping out uh, suddenly which has a great dynamic effect because it's sort of a sexy scene you know and it's sort of like the only light is their time and that kind of in- intermingling of the concept with the action um but i thought yeah it, you know i mean i think that it, it's the only thing i would say is um, it, actually, this would be a, an interesting jumping off point for another thought I had on uh, with regards to the VFX working in time is that it was a lot of work. You know, it seemed to me like I was surprised how much they actually had people with their sleeves rolled up, how often you saw it. And once you knew it was happening, you know, 20 years ago, you would have, you know, tried to do the whole movie with like 16 shots yeah, because it would have yeah, been so yeah. difficult that you would have had everyone wear long sleeves and everyone would have had a bandage yeah, on it would have been point. something you'd cover up but in this case you know it was pretty it was around a lot and a lot of gags were um you know actually their um, momentum was carried by the timer uh they used a lot yeah. of timer um uh kind of concepts pretty well uh, a couple of times really well i thought the sound design was really nice when people were timed out there was this kind of thud that they used and then the, you know the people would kind of convulse just a bit and it did was unsettling you found yourself wondering you know when is somebody just going to kind of be struck dead um the, the other issue with the, the vfx which i found interesting was when i left the theater i thought that like gattaca that the the bulk of the movie was found locations um it's interesting just to jump to gattaca for a second because i actually lived very close to the frank lloyd wright building that's featured so prominently in the movie and and it's always weird for me to see it because i used to go to that courthouse when i had jury duty but when i watched it's it in the, the marin movie, it's like, the marin county yeah. civic center right Exactly. But when you see it in Gattaca, for some reason, it has this kind of surrealist quality. It just, I kind of forget that. And I I found it interesting in in time that a lot of the the found, um, what I thought were found environments were actually set extensions or, or, you know, matte paintings or, you know, some adding uh, additional architecture into pre-existing streets and stuff like that. So here's a case where the, the work was so seamless that I assumed it was found locations and, and um, found constructions. But what's interesting is it was a decision to add things 
in a technically complicated way, you know, it's, it's still not completely um, free to do a, a set extension or add, add architecture. And yet, what they were adding was so kind of um, so kind of un, uh, un, unspectacular that you think in your mind, well, they wouldn't have added that. That's just a big concrete pillar, you know. Well, but I think that's an interesting idea when you're actually creating things that look like the things that you should have been able to find and like location scouting, but yet they're there on purpose because of the art direction. And um, as you, I think the, um, you know, Alex uh, McDowell, the production designer, has done a lot of, you know, effects films and has a lot of chops with that so it's definitely conscious um, uh, and I thought that was pretty interesting. Well it's interesting you should bring that it's about a couple of hundred shots of the arm or a couple of hundred shots that, that the guys did um, uh, at Soho but the it was Luma that did the landscape stuff or the you know the theoretically kind of matte painting set extension stuff but what, what we found out was that it was Roger Deakins the DOP that had worked with them on several Coen Brothers films, and he was the one that kind of requested that they come in. Um, and so those things, and, and for those that don't know, things like when they go through the barriers between the time zones, for example, a lot of that stuff is, is what we're talking about, um, adding to the pillars that were kind of there or to the concrete environment that was there. And then at the end when they're doing that, uh, that running to try and get to, I never quite understood why they had to get to that other time zone, but apparently if they did, they were going to be all right. Um, that that other time zone, uh, the matte paintings for that sort of wasteland area, that was a sort of disused area, but what was on the horizon was all comped in. I, I thought that's a this is a really interesting kind of trend because it seems to me that this film is, I think, budgeted around 30 or 40 million. I think we're going to see a heck of a lot more films in the 20 to 35, 40 million dollar range, and they're going to have. 300 500 visual effects shots and that's going to be an enabler for people to tell a story because not every shot's a visual effects shot but enough is that they can basically do whatever they want to get them to the interiors where they can work without effects or whatever it is that it takes and and i think that's a really strong point in the budget because you can actually make money on a film that costs 20 30 40 million (laughs) sort of relatively more easily if you like than you can if you I mean, uh, does anyone remember? I mean, it's just been in the news recently how much they were negotiating over the Lone Ranger. I think it's the Lone Ranger with Johnny Depp. It was like some astronomical amount of money, like two hundred fifty million or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a crazy amount of money, and then the studio finally balked, right, and said, "Like, nah, we're, I don't think we're going to do it." They backed off and came back and said, "All right, if you can get it down to two hundred and I think fifteen million or two hundred, it's about that, like two hundred fifty million, then we'll go with it." And I'm like, it's a guy on a horse. Why do you need $215 million to do that film? Because yeah. we're talking about 10 or 20 kind of of these sorts of films. And quite frankly, as a society, I kind of feel we might be better served by 10 or 20 in times. Over well, one. And, I, and I, I think, yeah, you look at a movie like In Time, and I'd be curious to see what the breakdown is in terms of like above the line and below the line costs on a movie like In Time. I would imagine the bulk of that $40 million or a huge chunk of it is probably to pay the actors. Yeah, I mean, I, I would think, but uh, well, although I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if Justin Timberlake is a bankable movie star commodity. I don't know if we would say that he is, but but in that respect, I think, you know, it's it's definitely a smart and smartly done lower budget 
movie by Hollywood standards for like a kind of a sci-fi futuristic kind of film. And in that regard, I think, uh, you know, it's a success in that way. If it's a movie that's able to get, you know, audiences into the theaters to come and, you know, shell out their money and, and make its money back, I think then I mean, yeah, an- it's, Anonymous. it's definitely a successful model in that way. Anonymous is another film in that bracket, like Anonymous mm-hmm. by un, uh, Uncharted Territory. I think tremendously successful. It's kind of 20, 30, maybe 35 million mark. I'm not sure on the exact budget, but it's like, just look at the trailer and tell me that doesn't feel like it's a big budget film. And and if oh, you yeah. can, and that's allowing someone to create an environment. Now, obviously, you know, you then have a lot of stuff inside and a lot of, um, you know, actors in in uh, scenes that don't require visual effects but if you can get if you can get good quality effects that can really get the audience there and then you can play a few major plot points using those effects with some real punch that that's a kind of healthy thing i think actually oh i totally agree can can we talk about one other effect sequence in in time though yeah uh, absolutely lower in the zone uh, the the car chase sequence and I, first, I just have to say that beautiful Jaguar is nice uh, to watch in a chase sequence. That was a nice, nice set of wheels. But um, the uh, I, one thing I didn't realize until after I saw the film, coming back and reading a little bit about it in preparation for tonight, was the um, the bit about how the actual Jag in the chase had uh, roll bars on it and seat belts and stuff. And so they went back in and digitally removed all of that stuff in several shots. And then... Uh, the the but the one shot I did want to mention and I'm curious if you guys had the same reaction the the sort of hero crash shot of yep. the jaguar like flipping off the embankment going down into the beautiful Los Angeles river basin um, that looked pretty pretty um, uh, there was something really unfortunate about that shot it looked like a, it looked like a miniature I don't know did did you guys did you guys have that reaction? I, I yeah, was like, I I noticed it, but I, again, you know, this is the strange thing: is it seemed almost like kind of surreal at that point. You know, I, it seemed like it wasn't an important beat in the way that it would be for an action director. A full fledged action director probably would have you know staged it slightly differently. So it sort of just it just sort of kind of came and but went was very it, quickly. But, but was it, was it a miniature odd. or was it? Was it a you know miniature? I, was it CG? Like the reason I, I thought it, it looked dynamic. I was going to say the reason I thought it looked miniature. Yeah, like the the physics looked kind of off, like yeah. in terms of the weight and the gravity. But the other thing about that shot that was so weird, and which I think was sort of working against it, was, and I don't know why this would have been the case, but if you think about that L.A. River Basin, right? I mean, it's basically, I mean, it's been sort of the star of so many movies and you know, video games, you know, for years and years, like so many things seem to happen in that, uh, well, river base. Let's not forget Greece. Of course. Yeah. I mean, how can you forget Greece or Terminator two or, you know, I mean, there's so many movies that happen down there. And, um, uh, but but part of the um, the construction of that space is such that it's you know it's basically gray, you know, flat sort of light gray concrete, and then you know you're in I don't think you're supposed to be, but in effect, right, you're in Los Angeles, so you have this like crisp Pacific blue sky, and so when you see that Jaguar crashing, that one shot that felt. Both, I think you're right, Ty, the physics felt wrong, the gravity felt wrong, but all you're seeing is this really kind of stylized, silvery vehicle flipping kind of over over its end, right, over on the hood. I think it's flipping like kind of end over in the long way. 
and you're seeing it on a flat gray um, uh, concrete slope going down into the basin against a blue sky. So it's like this hyper like uh, contrasty, very simplistic background with this really weirdly overly stylized silver jag, you know, with the, and I don't know if it was a miniature or if it was CG, I'd be really curious to find out which, but it just was, it was super jarring to me. And it kind of, it took the believability out of, you know, what was, you know, a, a mildly exciting chase sequence. And I, and I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, the, right away, it just looked totally uh, like a fake, a fake car. And I think the reasons were some of the ones that I cited. I mean, I think just the, the, the uh, layout of that shot as well as um, I think what you said, Ty, to the, the gravity. It's, it wasn't a shot that was milked. It was, it was, uh, it was quick. Yeah. It was sort of in and out. And, and obviously I think there was a meant to be a shock value just of it suddenly coming out of nowhere. Um, yeah. I was slightly, I think probably more flipped by those characters doing that because they, I had a moment of trying to grasp how they knew where they were. And even to do that, it did, it seemed incongruous. I, I thought it was going to be a plot point that they'd been, you know, contacted by the cops to, to be alerted or something because you know they um i think they they said that they were just doing it randomly and happened to catch them there was some kind of throwaway line to explain it but it did seem a bit weird yeah. coming out of yeah the, in the uh, the spike strip yeah yeah that's that's oh, the kind yeah, of yeah, thing yeah. that that's the that's what i'm kind of citing is that you know out of all the streets and all the city the there's just this kind of convenience of here comes the the hero and his you know his his uh, hostage slash girlfriend and they just pick the wrong street and the the thugs that are the guys that are after him are just roll up in their orange car. Matt, what kind of car was that? Wasn't that a a, a Jaguar? Uh, what was that? No, no, no. The the one of the 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 one the, the thugs yeah. drove the orange. It looked like a a weird like nineteen oh, seventies yeah. like or a, something. It was like an Oldsmobile, wasn't it? Something I don't, I don't know. know. It was, it was weird. Like some the orange thing. Yeah, that was nice. That was a hot hot set of wheels. <laughs> Pimp, pimped out, man. It just needed some hydraulics though to go. For they had the LA. only colored vehicle in the film, which I thought was interesting too. <laughs> um, well, okay, so I think we've established pretty much that I liked it more than you guys, but I'm not hearing that you thought it was uh, it was a heinous thing. But I, I do want to just do get your opinion on this kind of like: is there not uh, a real role? Because I think we we're, we're just establishing with these films, and I said this earlier this kind of, it's no longer an indie film and it's no longer a low-budget film. It's just a, a kind of moderate-budget film. But I don't, I don't really have a category for it, but it feels like there's films like this that don't have megastars in them but certainly have names in them. They're not done, you know, just uh, for $100,000 by a bunch of guys who borrowed a red camera uh, or a DV camera from a mate. So uh, I think I'd like to see more of these. I'd like to see this genre grow. It was a professionally made film. Uh, that had an yeah. interesting original kind of story, and uh, and it absolutely. I, I think you're right, Ty. You've you've certainly uh, provided a fairly compelling argument on some of those points. But I still just forgave it. I just liked this film. I was sort of barracking for it, as it were. Um, yeah, I wanted to like well, it. 
I think that's great, though. I mean, it's funny because this is my third show, and and I and I have to say I, I really enjoy the dialogue, and I enjoy the the, the correspondence that the many people have you know kind of piped me, hit me with a, a an email and about this or that. And one thing it should be known about me, and Matt knows this because we go way back, is I think w- watching a movie is very personal. Um, I think that. You know, oftentimes, especially in the context of social gatherings, you know, when when someone wants to make a point about their particular uh, brand of film that they like or enjoy, that they, you know, you can always um, look for uh, support uh, with critics, non-critics. Uh, you know, there's an, always a range of magazines from, you know, uh, People magazine that that may have a, a an interest in, you know, kind of light humor, whereas American Cinematographer or you know, film film theory is going to have a whole different thing. So I, I like people that like movies and are willing to say, you know what, it worked for me. I dig it. Um, I did a strange thing years back. I, I, I was a big fan of this movie called Nadja, which was a David Lynch produced it. And it was um, this little film that was done all digitally. And it was about, uh, you know, vampires. And it was it was sort of ridiculous on a number of levels. But I, I liked there was a little cameo with David Lynch. And it was shot in interesting black and white and had a lesbians in it. And it was, you know, something that I thought was all kind of uh, cutting edge and weird and and i recommended it to a few people and you know it was instantaneous that they would get back to me and go jesus you know dude what were you thinking about when you liked (laughs) this movie you know and of all people i recommended it to guillermo del toro when i was working on mimic and he went right out and bought it on laserdisc and to this day he's never let me forget you know how how disappointed he was in nadja so you know i think when you when you um, like a film uh, on one level, it's it's what it's all about. Um, on another level, when it comes to discussing it and how it was structured and the decisions that the director made and so on and so forth, it's sort of a, you know, that's sort of a party in a weird way. That's sort of like... Um, where the the you know the life experience you've had and the different films you've watched and your own kind of take and I've had movies affect me on specific days where on a certain day I, you know a movie really knocks my socks off I'll go back a few years later and see it again and it's it's not quite all it was meant to be in my case with regards to in time and Gattaca is I hadn't seen Gattaca project uh, since I saw it projected I saw it right away in the theater and I, I thought it was a great little film I didn't really remember it blowing my socks off or jazzing me that much but surprisingly watching it again just yesterday on DVD it was a much better movie than I actually remembered it was a much better film than I had recalled and uh, so that proves the point right there that I actually thought it had improved with age and I think a lot of it in in terms of Gattaca was Jude Law was was just such an awesome character oh, yeah. he was an unknown he, I think it was his first film and he brings a lot of credibility to that ensemble. Ethan mm-hmm. Hawke's character is actually a much more um, low-key internal character. And, of course, the, the Judd Law character is this kind of you know, rich kid who's lost it all and is pissed off at the world and all that stuff. So they had a great... Uh, symmetry, and they had really good dialogue that was delivered really well. And then Uma Thurman was just kind of a motivating factor. She was candy, you know. She was the carrot that kept the character moving in a different direction than into space, and that was what her role was. I think just looking at that point, um, uh, when it comes to in time, it was really a, it was really just Justin Timberlake who carried the movie. I mean, he and the the guy who was the keeper of time. Um, 
uh, his name is oh, Murphy. Yeah, and they were really the protagonist and antagonist. But 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 the 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 daughter of the rich person, um, who is one of the madman guys, mm. um, um, you know, she really became like um, uh, the the trophy. She really became part of the reward, and she was there as a as a way to draw the dialogue out of out of the Justin Timberlake character and back and forth. And the exchange, in my mind, it wasn't as rich. In uh, richly drawn because their their relationship was much some more simplistic. It was a, a love relationship that was just simple man woman, um, and the rich poor aspect of it, which ultimately kind of led them to this Bonnie and Clyde angle, which was sort of fun. You know that was supposed to be I think their character arc, but it, it, they became kind of lovers at a point where you just saw them as as kind of. Um, um, you know, having conversation about the moment in the day, and it didn't have the kind of yeah. depth to it. I think, I didn't it, think. it, yeah, it just it was. A, it, I think it was just more. And this isn't a, a derogatory comment. I just think in the long run, that relationship, that care, that level of characterization, and in time, was much more sort of of a comic booky kind of uh, ilk, you know. And I think that that was kind of its. That was sort of its. Um, it's range, you know. I don't think it was trying to go much further than that. I do think, though, the uh, the the female character in In Time does deserve some kudos for having to run for her life when she had nothing but seconds remaining in a pair of three-inch stiletto heels. <laughs> I think that's yeah. Those were really some tall shoes. <laughs> that was some serious stunt work. I thought. Uh, okay. Look, um, let us know what you think of the show and let us know your, th- your thoughts on the film. Uh, please send a, a, it in. I mean, you know, we uh, we do things from time to time on the show and we test the balances. I, I desperately am keen to, in addition to the retro shows, do a few shows that aren't just blockbusters. I think it's tempting just to go for the big tent poles. They tend to have the biggest budgets on effects. And I, and I know a lot of you send us a lot of emails on the retro shows. So if there are films that are slightly off the beaten track that we... Put and I'm not going to turn this into an art house show. But if there's uh, something you'd like to explore more, make some suggestions. Um, we'll see what we can do. Time at it's actually always a real joy talking to you guys because I I just sense in you both uh, a real interest in in film and of course I really you know respect your careers in visual effects. So it's always a joy to have you on the show. So thank you for joining us. Oh, thank it's you. a pleasure. Um. Guys, where can people uh, track you, follow you? Matt, starting with you. Uh, you can always track me down at uh, at VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, or um, at mattwallen.com. All things me are there. And Ty? <laughs> Um, you can always look at uh, my website, which is alieninsect.com. Uh, there's a little button there for uh, email communications, and I'm also on Facebook with uh, Ty Rubin. Just and do of, a little search. And, of course, I'm Mike Seymour on Twitter. Thank you so much for being with us, guys. We really appreciate it. We'll catch you next week. See you. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright 2012, FX Guide, LLC.